So, yeah, I'm excited this morning because um, we have a guest preacher, and in a few few minutes, I'm, a few moments, I'm going to invite him up. But first, I'd like to just say a few words of introduction. Um, and the the guy who's going to be sharing with us, his name's Tommy Airy, and and Tommy has become just in the recent uh, weeks uh, a good friend of mine, a, a new friend of mine, and I'm just really excited to have him here to share a word with you all. I first learned uh, of Tommy. A few years ago, when I stumbled across uh, a website called RadicalDiscipleship.net, um, that, that name was intriguing to me, and, and I had read some stuff by some other folks who were affiliated with that group, and, and I began to dig into a lot of their essays and a lot of their writings. They had this thing called the, uh, I think it was called the Radical Lectionary, where they would go through and write essays about the lectionary text, and, and every time I would read uh, the essays on this website, I was always challenged, and and always, you know, there were always things that came to my mind and my spirit and my attention that I had not been thinking about uh, previously. And I remember reading some of Tommy's essays on different biblical texts. Um, at Embrace, we often talk about how we need to read the Bible, but also read the moment. And we have to hold those together. And Tommy really embodies that way uh, of, of living in the world. He has a unique gift of helping see folks how this ancient text that was written uh, thousands of years ago in a, in a land that's thousands of miles from here, helping us see how this ancient text can speak to our most critical and pressing issues that we're facing uh, right now in our world. And so fast forward uh, to a few weeks ago, um, a friend of mine, Jeremy Porter, who's here this morning as well. Wave, Jeremy. Jeremy's up here. Uh, Jeremy, is, I've been friends with Jeremy and working with Jeremy on a lot of things over the last many years. And he reached out to me about the possibility of getting together and doing this camping trip with some men uh, to have some spiritual conversation and, and really kind of dig deep and, and ask some hard questions and really wrestle with some stuff together and hopefully form um, some lasting friendships. And, and I was like, that sounds great. I could use more friends. Uh, I love the idea. And so um, I, I said, sure, let's do it. We had some Zoom meetings that we prepared for this camping trip. And one of those men that was helping lead this uh, was Tommy. And so I was like, Tommy and I met on Zoom, and I'm like, hey, I know who you are. I've read some of your stuff. And, and so it, it was really neat to kind of have that come together for me. Um, but Tommy came down from Detroit, um, where he lives and works, and we spent the weekend together at the Gorge and just got back yesterday, and I am exhausted. Uh, for an introvert, you know, like being with people for that, that amount of time and having to talk about really deep, hard things, I'm just like, this is good, but I need to recover. Uh, we joke because Jeremy was literally the only extrovert in the group, and he, he pulled together all these introverts just to, like, sap our energy from us, you know. And Jeremy is, like, so full of energy this morning somehow. I don't understand it. Um, I, I, I don't understand you all who are extroverts, uh, but I love you, uh, and I accept you. Um, thank you, Jeremy. Uh, Tanya's another one I don't understand. Uh, but I, I'm grateful that my fellow introvert Tommy was on this trip and, and we got to know each other um, a good bit. It's crazy when you, you spend that amount of time and you have intentional conversations. Um, you can really get to know someone on a, on a deeper level. Um, I've known people for many, many years and still don't know a lot of the things that, you know, that, that I'd like to know about their life because we don't often get to those deeper places. Um, Tommy is a great listener. Um, he, he's really smart uh, and he is very intentional in the way he lives. Um, another thing we talk about here at Embrace is we need to 
stay awake to both the hope and the horror, right? Because there, there's a lot that we can see that is hopeful out there in the world, but there's some horrific and awful things out there too, and we have to keep our eyes open to both, and we can't just look away from the hard stuff, um, and we also can't just focus on the hard stuff because there's a lot of beauty and a lot of goodness around us. And I think also Tommy embodies that way of living in the world. Um, he doesn't ignore the harsh realities around us, but actively engages forces of injustice and these evil powers that are seeking to destroy, but also clings to the hope of redemption and healing through love and through tenderness and through compassion. And I'm grateful that I have a new friend, and I'm also looking forward to hearing what he has to share for us this morning. And so I, I don't know if it was mentioned, we did a, a whole liturgy on the Spirit, but today is Pentecost Sunday. As you can see, the, the red, it's, it's, I don't know if it's ever been on uh, Memorial Day weekend, in my experience being here at Embrace, uh, so it kind of snuck up on us a little bit. But it is Pentecost, and so we're celebrating the gift of God's Spirit, and we're going to be looking at this text about this story that we often refer back to um, um, every single year on this day. And so, uh, Tommy, you can come on up. Let's give Tommy a hand as he comes to the front. Welcome him. I'm going to stop talking and turn it over to you. Good morning. Thank you for those words, John. Um, yeah, and I realized that, uh, that we, we haven't read the text here, so I, I swooped up one of these Bibles uh, so, so, I could, uh, so I can read um, th this Pentecost text in, in Acts chapter 2. Before I even read, I, I need to confess to y'all that um, I graduated from the University of Kansas, and so... I understand that I'm, I'm in enemy territory right here, but I, 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 I come to you, brothers and sisters, in the peace of Christ. We are on the same team. We, yeah, thank you, thank you. All right, um, so with that out of the way. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were amazed and wondered, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and the, and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in their own tongues the mighty works of God. 
And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. I'm going to stop right there. I, um, I graduated from the University of Kansas, but I grew up in Southern California. I'm, I'm a Southern California native. Um, uh, I, I live in Detroit now with uh, my partner, Lindsay, uh, who is also a Southern California native. And, and we do the work of uh, what we call soul accompaniment. Um, we, we, uh, Lindsay's a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, we, we do some work with couples, but also some of the work that we do is with folks like us who grew up in Christian fundamentalism. And in and, and our unwinding some of those old scripts uh, that, uh, that they grew up with, and, um, and they're trying to make sense of, uh, of what I would call something else, capital S, capital E, something else. Like, what does it mean to follow a different kind of God, a God who subverts those supremacy stories that we grew up with? Um, and, and so I, uh, when I was 10 years old, fourth grade, uh, my mom got a job teaching at this Christian fundamentalist school, um, and so my brother and I started to attend there. And so in, in fourth grade, we started every day by uh, pledging allegiance to the flag, um, the American flag. We also pledged allegiance to the Christian flag, and we also pledged allegiance to the Bible. Uh, and, and after our morning Bible reading, my fourth grade teacher, who I absolutely loved, Mr. Cavallero, would say, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And, and it was that certainty, that supremacy, uh, that soaked up my faith for 20 years. And so that's where I'm coming from. And in the past 20 years, I'm about to turn 50 this, this fall, in the last 20 years I've been repenting in a process of repenting from that kind of certain supremacy type of faith. Um, and, and I'll say this too, that that word repentance in the New Testament, uh, it's a word that Jesus used in the Gospels, it's the, the Greek word metanoia, that, that in that context in the ancient world, repentance meant war language. It literally came from the battlefield. The person who repented was the soldier who switched sides in the middle of a battle. The repenter was a traitor. And I think that that political kind of subversive way of understanding what Jesus was telling his disciples to do is, is really how I understand my faith today that I've switched sides, I've switched teams, and instead of casting aside Jesus, instead of shelving the Bible, I've continuously been compelled to just keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper. Uh, I've followed Jesus out of Christian fundamentalism. And so I, I, I share those words early because I just want to focus on this one short text from this Pentecost passage. Um, because 
in the last 20 years, my old friends and family members who are still fundamentalists have, as we've had conversations that sometimes turn into arguments, have consistently said this to me, why would God make it so confusing? Why would God make it so confusing? And so we come to this text this morning, and it says, at the sound of the crowd gathered, um, at this, and at this, the sound, the crowd gathered and was confused. The crowd was bewildered. A few verses later, it says, the crowd was perplexed a word that means in the Greek that you've come to all of these different options and none of them make sense. And, and this word confused in the Greek is a word that means uh, to pour out together. So like, like there are like these multiple options that are coming together and I like to think of it as the divine creating cognitive dissonance. The divine is intentionally confusing these folks. And what Pentecost does is, is it intentionally goes back to the old, old story in Genesis of the Tower of Babel. It's using the exact same language. And if you remember in the Tower of Babel, um, the people said to each other, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. The people are speaking in plural. They're coming together to build this city. And God, in the text, also speaks in plural. And God says, Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. So, so there's some biblical scholars that say that Pentecost overturned Babel. But, but I, I stand in a tradition with biblical scholars that say, actually, Pentecost doubled down on Babel, on the Babel story. The God of Pentecost is doing exactly the same thing as the God of Babel. It's a God who confuses in order to lead the people to co collective liberation. In other words, it's a God um, that stamps the world with diversity. And it's the diversity, it's the difference that leads to salvation, not the sameness. And so, Acts 2 is the beginning of the second season of the television show called The Gospel of Luke, Right? It's written by the same author. So previously, in Luke, 
at the very beginning of Luke, the angel Gabriel came to Mary, the teen virgin, and it says this, Gabriel came to her and said, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you, but she, Mary, was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The God of confusion leading to collective liberation. In Jesus' first sermon in Nazareth, this is Luke chapter 4, Jesus emphasizes the way that God goes to other people outside of Israel, to the widows and the lepers who are not Jewish. The text says, when the people heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off a cliff. Jesus barely survived his first sermon. He was saying some rather confusing things to the people that led to a whole lot of rage. When John the Baptist found himself in jail for preaching some rather confusing things, it says that Herod in the text was perplexed at what sort of things were going on. John seems confused and he sends his disciples to Jesus and the text says, and Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. Jesus is quoting the prophet Isaiah and he's saying, this is what's going on. It seems confusing, but this is what's happening. The audience of Jesus' teaching later on in Luke had to be confused by the protagonists, people like the good Samaritan and a father that runs in the prodigal story. The text says, so the father set off, um, so the, excuse me, so the prodigal son set off and went to his father, but while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. In the ancient world, no dignified man would ever do anything like this. Jesus is totally bending gender categories. The people would have been confused. And then lastly, after he's crucified on the road to Emmaus, the disciples tell the incognito Jesus, remember they don't recognize him on the road, they say to him, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found out that it was just 
as the women said. In the ancient world, if you were a woman, your testimony was not credible in court. Your testimony was second-guessed. And at the end of Luke's gospel, what the women said was true, of course, no matter how confusing it was. And so the Bible, for me, 40 years of reading this, what I keep coming to is this God who weaves through the Bible. And there certainly is a picture of God throughout the Bible that is also supremacist. But there is also this other God who confuses people in order to liberate people. And that's the story of my life. This is my story with Jesus and my story with the Bible. In 2001, two weeks before 9-11, I was leading a group of high school students to Kenya with a Southern Baptist organization. And of course, we went to Kenya to get people saved. But what happened to me in Kibera, which is one of the largest slums in the world, is I was there one afternoon just looking around completely confused. And one of the things that confused me, and, and, and really the, 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 the main thing that was just confusing me, it was plaguing me, as I, I looked at all of this abject poverty, I, I grew up in the suburbs of Southern California, Orange County, I looked at all these folks, and it was a huge contrast to Saddleback Church where I was attending, the second largest megachurch in North America, and I was thinking to myself, and it was, it hit my heart hard, you mean to tell me that all of these folks, if they have not invited the Lord Jesus into their heart, they're going to hell when they die? I was confused. And I took that home with me, and, and at the time I was a high school teacher, and um, in my classroom, I was teaching at a large public high school, and I had students like Aida, and Anna Karen, and Carlos, and Dennis, and a whole lot of others who were sharing their story with me about how they came north and crossed the border illegally just to survive. And their stories were confusing me because they were different than the kinds of political convictions and the, the kinds of spiritual convictions that my pastors had shared with me when I was growing up. I was confused. And then, sure enough, um, I became an athletic director just a, about a year after that at this, at this uh, high school. And I was hiring a, a, a boys volleyball coach, Travis, um, who, who had been coaching at the high school for uh, a few years and I had seen his work and, and how he knows the game and how great he is with the kids. And I, I said, Travis, I, I wanna hire you to be the head coach. And Travis said that he was excited he said, but I, there's something I want you to know. 
And then Travis came out to me and said he was gay. And that confused me. Uh, because I, I, I observed Travis and I knew Travis and I watched how Travis treated other people. And honestly, it was far better than most of the people who went to my church. It was confusing to me. In the past few years, um, Lindsay and I moved to Detroit. Uh, we moved to Detroit in 2014. Um, I, I retired from teaching. I, um, Lindsay and I both realized that for our own Christian discipleship, for our own collective liberation, it was time to move out of the suburbs and, and, and take cues from some other folks. And so we decided to move to Detroit. Uh, we raised support for this nonprofit um, that we started. And two months into our time in Detroit, the fall of 2014, we joined some folks um, from our neighborhood in this march for affordable water. Um, in Detroit, they were shutting off people's water. Long time, low income, 99% black, shutting off their water because they couldn't afford to pay it. And on this march, these women from Flint showed up with bottles of water that was yellowish brown. And they testified and said, this is coming out of our taps, and it's not only coming out of our taps, it's coming out of everyone's taps in our city. And I confess to you today that I listened to them, and I believed them kind of because I still had racist and patriarchal scripts running through my head, and I still said to myself, wait a second, this is America. This doesn't happen here. And I wrestled with that, and I was confused, and 15 months later, it hit the headlines of every newspaper in our country that Flint's entire city was poisoned. And we can go deep into that story. And throughout our time in Detroit, over and over and over again, it has been this process of being confused and seeing what is happening to these people, illegal tax foreclosures, subprime mortgages from banks, water shutoffs, kind of mass gentrification that's happening in this country in 2023. And so I want to close with this and just say that I, I worship a God who confuses because that's the God that I read in the Bible, but it's also because that's the God that has arrested my soul with the kind of confusion that is in the process, the long, long process of healing and liberating me. What I now believe is that confusion strengthens the soul in ways that certainty and supremacy actually atrophies it. And, and I only know that from my own life.
That's just, that's just comparing and contrasting where I came from and where I'm going. When we're confused, it's a great place to be because God is putting us through a process. God confuses us so we do not base our lives on a human hierarchy of value, on a supremacy of sameness, based on what we look like, what language we speak, who we love and live with, where we were born, how we worship, or what pronouns we prefer for ourselves. And so I, I want to just kind of close with a benediction um, rooted in a story. We, Lindsay and I found ourselves like right at the beginning of the pandemic um, as, as, as interim pastors of this little Lutheran United Methodist church plant in Bend, Oregon, uh, in Central Oregon. It's one of the most beautiful places that we've ever been to, um, right on the edge of the Cascades and uh, the Great Basin Desert, um, this weird place where the juniper trees and the ponderosa pines are all like kind of growing together on the Deschutes River. And, and we lived in this little one-bedroom ADU on the land uh, owned by Amanda, who's uh, a, an elementary school teacher there, and her partner, Kyle, who's a general contractor who, who has uh, potty trained all three of their sons on construction uh, sites, um, and, um, and it, these crazy Mennonites, I'm telling you, these, uh, these beautiful, beautiful, crazy Mennonites um, took us in and, uh, and one day, Kyle came to Lindsay and I and said, I need your help. He said, I'm, I'm constructing this pizza oven in the backyard made out of just like extra stuff that I've found on construction sites. And I love the idea of a pizza oven. So uh, I, said, I said, count us in. And so we were helping him this afternoon, it was cold, um, but we were having a great time, and we were pouring cement, and then all of a sudden I made this just crucial mistake. And, and I, thought, I thought, you know, the, the whole plans were, were done, and Kyle just said, wabi-sabi. I, I said, what? And he said, wabi-sabi. And he said, wabi-sabi is this Japanese term connected to art, and it means that there is beauty in our mistakes. Wabi-sabi. Uh, and, and, and so we kept going, and we built it. And the beautiful thing is, is that Kyle, his, his belief in wabi-sabi continued beyond constructing the pizza oven, because when it was time to actually make the pizzas, Kyle put me in charge of actually rotating the pies in the pizza oven. So I dropped some dough on the dirt, and I burnt a hole in some of them, and every single time, Kyle would just yell out, wabi-sabi, like, like, like he was like a kid at his first college kegger, you know, wabi-sabi. And so I, I carry that 
on in my body um, because I am a person who lives with a lot of perfectionism, um, a lot of codependency. This is why I'm in 12-step. This is why I need therapy. Um, a person who is scared to make mistakes. Uh, and, I, and I believe that in this text, this Pentecost text, and throughout the scriptures, I believe, brothers and sisters, that we worship a God of wabi-sabi. Amen? Amen.